I don't want this to be too much of a formal start, but I do want to welcome you to the Spot On original podcast on Spotify. We're so excited to have you here. And I am delighted to be here. Thank uh, you for having me back to Spotify. You're very welcome. The last time you were with us, we were talking about our parental leave policy, which was fresh off the plate uh, in 2015. And now here we are several years later, and I'm one of those beneficiaries of that wonderful benefit. Two babies later. Two babies. My goodness. This is Spot On. The new Spotify podcast, Spot On, focuses on the intersection of great leadership and diverse backgrounds that leads to unique and often surprising ways in which we interact with the world. On this episode of Spot On, I'm joined by Valerie Jarrett, an author, businesswoman, and former senior advisor to President Obama. As a tireless advocate for progressive policy, she co-chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls, and the task force to protect students from sexual assault, in addition to many other leadership positions. To start, I asked her to introduce herself in her own words. Well, Valerie Jarrett started out with an unusual childhood, having been born in Iran and lived there for five years because my father, who was a black doctor in the United States, couldn't find an opportunity for himself here. From Iran, he found a job in London, and we lived there for a year. And from there, he was recruited to the University of Chicago. And so when I first went to Chicago, which was home for my mom, it was like a foreign land for me. And I was a painfully shy child and really didn't feel like I fit in. Uh, And I wanted to just be like every other kid. And so I stopped talking about my kind of exotic background and lost that British accent and stopped speaking the foreign languages that I had learned. And I just wanted to be like everybody else. And so my story is really about how I grew into an adult and found my voice and swerved outside of my comfort zone in this crazy 10-year plan I had for myself and found my passion in public service. And that really was where uh, the magic began. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. Now, there are many identities that make up Valerie Jarrett, mother, daughter, woman, black woman, um, a Chicagoan, a civil servant, uh, an advocate. Which one do you think has defined you the most? I think all of the above. And I think in a sense, we're all our complete story. And we're not one dimensional. We're all multifaceted. And I learned a lot from my mother. I learned a lot from my daughter. Being an advocate taught me to advocate not just for others, including those most in need, but also for myself. Public service changed my life and gave me purpose and meaning in a way that I didn't have when I was a lawyer at a big corporate law firm. And so it all adds up to a complete package. And one of the reasons why I wanted to tell my story is in the hopes that other people would be willing to share theirs. Fantastic. So I had the added benefit of actually listening to your book, Finding My Voice, and you narrated it, which I loved. So what I could capture was your voice rising and falling throughout the story. And the places where your your voice really would rise the most was when you talked about family and friendships and the connections with others. It really centered around community, and that seems to have brought you a lot of joy. So my question is, in what ways has your community both buoyed and grounded you? Well, uh, my community begins with my family. And I was so fortunate to have parents that loved me unconditionally and, and set high expectations for me, but also gave me a safety net if I were to stumble and fall. 
I had a very strong matriarchal grandmother who lived around the corner in the same building with my mother's sister and their children. And we had a large extended family in our neighborhood. And so I felt the sense of place and belonging tied to the people in my life who I was most close to. Uh, and so they lift me up and they also ground me. They do both. And they're there for me and when times are good, but also most importantly, when times are not so good. And I think that is what has given me the ability to be resilient in life is to know that I have this great circle of people who are rooting for me and who I am rooting for them and that we invest in each other over the long term. Yeah. And that's what I really, I got a true sense of, like, it's quite palpable, that feeling of advocacy within your own family, mm -hmm. the network of cousins, and especially, you know, your maternal grandmother, Puddin, I Puddin? think you, yes. you refer to her as. So how have you advocated for more than your community outside of, I guess, where you grew up and across the world? And specifically, how have you advocated for other women? Well, I think part of my advocacy grew out of my own life experiences. When I was a young working mom, I felt as though I was hanging on by my fingertips. And I had resources, excellent childcare. My parents lived a mile away. Uh, I had health insurance. I didn't have to worry about making ends meet. I knew I had enough money to never worry about paying rent and food and, and taking care of my daughter once I became a single mom. And yet I still felt like I was holding on by my fingertips. And so I used to wonder back then, and this is now back in the early 90s, well, my goodness, if this is so hard for me, what's, what must it be like for those working families who don't have the safety net that I have? And so then I started focusing on issues, which drew me to Spotify the first time, like paid leave. I had four months paid maternity leave. And, I, and it was still, <laughs> yes, 33 years ago. Yeah. And it was still excruciating to go back to work. And so what about those moms who don't have any paid leave or and take two weeks off and then are expected to go right back to work? Or equal pay. I've always had equal pay to my male counterparts. And we know in this country, women still only, only earn like 80 cents on the dollar. Women of color, far less than that. Uh, workplace flexibility. After I left my law firm, I always had flexibility. Uh, affordable childcare, all of the issues, a workplace free from sexual harassment or violence. Um, all of the issues that I think that are working important to working families, I became passionate about when I was a working mom. Yeah. And I thought it shouldn't have to be this hard. And some of it I did to myself because I thought I was superhuman. And, you know, doing crazy things like making baby food from scratch, which I've already told you not yes. to do. Um, I have done. I yes. will stop that tonight. So many of us <laughs> do. And it's because we're, in a sense, we're we're trying to do for our children uh, what you think because you love them so dearly and you're at work and you're just trying to, like, make up and, and be as complete as you can be for them. And they're just fine. And, in fact, recently my daughter um, participated in my book tour. And the person who moderated the conversation asked her, like, what did you learn about your mom in the book that you didn't know before? And she said, I had no idea she felt so guilty. Oh, yeah. And she, the said, guilt. she said, she shouldn't have felt guilty. I was just fine. And she looked into the audience and she said, all you working moms out there, stop it. Your kids are going to be okay. And I thought, what a gift for you to give them. Uh, and I did feel guilty. I felt when I was at work, I felt like I should be home. When I was at home, I felt like I should be at work. And so those experiences, I think, shaped me in a fundamental way to want to be an advocate for women uh, and girls who have um, the ability to reach for the stars 
first of all, if they can see what they want to be, because it's a lot easier when you can see a role model for it. But also if we as a society and as employers try to make it a little bit easier on them. Yeah, for sure. So extending that question a little bit further, how do we talk to men about these issues? Well, men have to be a part of the solution because let's face it, men are still in leadership positions all across the country and across the world. And one of the ways that I have appealed to them is kind of enlightened self-interest. Um, I've given up with this, it's the right thing to do. And I say to them, your business model, and you'll appreciate this, uh, should hinge on being globally competitive because now every company has to be globally competitive. And so if you care about that, you should be about the business of attracting and retaining the best talent possible. And turnover is the enemy. And uh, loyalty and devotion and a work ethic are all important. And so if you invest in these initiatives that I call priorities for working families, you're going to get the best out of your workers. So it's in your self-interest to do it. It will make you more profitable if you do it. And so that's the, kind of the pitch that I've been making. And the evidence is bearing that out, which is also very helpful to have a now growing foundation of evidence that shows uh, just the reasons why Spotify decided to invest the way you have in your workforce uh, people will stay and they will be more productive if you do so. Fantastic. And that's what, that's something that we're working very closely on here. You know, our, obviously our parental leave is equal parts for men and women, mm -hmm. both parents in whatever form Sends they show up. a very important message. Exactly. The, the responsibility lies on, on both yes. genders or on these two particular genders. So I think um, Pivoting slightly now, uh, we talk a lot or you talk a lot in your book about finding your voice and finding our own voice. And, and there is some wonderful, wonderful material and, and nuggets of information in there. What I would love to understand is what do you think are the three threats to finding our voice and how do you think we can overcome that? Well, the first threat is... Uh not trusting your own voice. And that's the quiet one inside of all of us. Mm -hmm. And we do need to learn to trust it. And I think oftentimes uh, the voices around us tell us that we should be doing something. And I certainly started my career doing what I thought would make everybody else happy. Even though if I were to really think honestly, I, I wasn't sure it was gonna make me happy, but I thought I was seeking approval outside of myself. So you do have to start, the first thread is your own self. So trust your voice, listen to it, empower it. And then the second is that you do have to have courage. Mm -hmm. So it's not the absence of fear. My mm. goodness, I've been scared most of my life. It's overcoming the fear that so that it doesn't paralyze you from making um, decisions to swerve outside of your comfort zone. And I think so, so often we cling to that comfort zone. Even if we're not happy, it's familiar. And I think we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, I love that one. That's and my favorite. That's the adventure. Mm. That's where mm -hmm. the zig and the zag comes in. And I think that it's terrifying and yet exhilarating. And the more practice you have at getting outside the comfort zone, the more confident you are that you're going to be okay. It's like learning to ski and you swerve from side to side. And then if you, you know, we, and if you fall down, you also learn you can get back up. Yeah. Fantastic. And so all of that comes, I think, through experience. Absolutely. So recently, Ariana Huffington actually said that fearlessness is a muscle we must exercise for it to become more natural. In your life, finding your voice sounds like a case study for exercising fearlessness. How is that muscle not snapped, though? How do you build resilience within that muscle, fearlessness? Well, I think because you see what happens when it doesn't work out and that yeah. you survive and that mm. you do get back up and that you learn hopefully from your mistakes. And and your mistakes should not define you. I say failure doesn't define me. 
failure has helped me grow. And I think uh, over time, as you have more experience with it, you realize, okay, I actually can survive that. It's not the end of the world. I remember when I uh, got divorced, I thought, oh my goodness, I am now a failure. Well, that's just ridiculous. Um, and it just, it paralyzed me for a little while there and it, and it shook my foundation. But you know what? I got over it. And not only did I get over it, I realized after I was single that my goodness, I had been far lonelier in an unhappy marriage than I was single on my own two feet. And I had wondered like, how am I going to ever take care of this child on my own? And then I did take care of this child on my own. And so those experiences that you have where you, um, you try and you fail and you get back up and you see that you are in fact resilient and you ground yourself mm. with people who will support you. I don't think this is something one can do alone. And I'm, I'm concerned about in a mental health with mm. young people in particular who feel isolated, who rely heavily on social media for their socialization as opposed to sitting across the table from somebody and having, you know, a cup of tea with them and, and looking into their eyes and, and learning how to listen actively to another person, put yourself in their shoes, feel empathy for their story and search for something in common with somebody with whom you think you might not have anything in common. And unfortunately, the way technology has improved our lives to a large extent has also created these barriers, I think, to leading to well-being. And so what are we going to do about that? That's something that I'm spending some time thinking about as well. Yeah, and we're doing the same here at Spotify. We've, you know, recently launched Heart and Soul, which is our mental health initiative internally. And we have 12 ambassadors across the globe who are actually, you know, championing this message, reducing stigma, you know, creating self-care channels and also our all the feels program, which is around uh, counseling on site. So what do you believe is the way forward with mental health challenges? since it affects everyone in the world in some way, shape or form, what do you think companies like ours can start to do to really change the landscape around mental health, being a technology company as well? Well, I think, first of all, we need to look at the evidence. And there's now mounting research that shows what some of the factors are that contribute to poor mental health. And then I think uh, the private sector can be extraordinarily impactful, beginning with your own workforce mm. and recognizing that people come to the office with all kinds of conditions that affect their work. And so it's in your self-interest. We had, for example, um, a forum with employers when we were in the White House on domestic violence. And initially, employers were like, well, what does that have to do with me? That happens in the home. Well, if you look at lost sick days, from people who have been survivors of domestic violence and the impact that has on the company's bottom line. It actually is relevant to you. And you should care enough about your workers that you're concerned about whether their well-being, including their mental well-being. And so just as you're doing, having a place for people to go when they are struggling and, and demystif not demystifying, ensuring that people do not view it as having a stigma attached to it. When uh, President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act, he in ensured that mental health was treated on par with physical health because we wanted to make sure that people were able to get insurance and take care of both issues and that we need to stop thinking that mental health is something that we should be ashamed about. We shouldn't be. Um, if you saw somebody who was in a car accident, you'd rush to help them, right? If you see somebody who's struggling with mental health, we should have the tools to help them as well. And we shouldn't feel like, oh, no, I shouldn't interfere. And so I think 
just talking about it openly within the workplace and making tools available to people to get the help that they need and ensuring that they feel that they have a support network around them. So once you have your own house in order, then I think you can be a very effective spokesperson to the rest of the world to say, yes, we should all be following our lead uh, in improving the, the mental health of our about the people who we should care about. Yeah, and I had this realization recently. Um, I've struggled with mental health after having my children, mm -hmm. um, postnatal depression and anxiety. And one thing that I didn't realize the impact of was actually sharing my story. So letting people know that I was, you know, impacted by something that I had, first of all, no idea was going on inside me and that I thought that I was immune to. Postpartum you know, depression is something that we don't talk about. And mm. it's so interesting. The way we're organized, as soon as, while you're pregnant, they focus on the mom and making sure you're monitoring the baby. When the baby's born, everything turns to the baby. Well, what about the mom? And so, again, so many women don't talk about postpartum depression because, you know, they feel embarrassed about it or they don't understand it or they think that they're, only per they're the only person who feels that way. And so for you to bravely open up and talk about it, gives other people permission to to recognize it in themselves by putting a, a name to it and to and to also then go get help. Yeah. And storytelling. Yes. Just the power of storytelling I think just transforms the whole conversation. Absolutely. That it stops being about this concept that we we get in a book or on the shelf or it sits in its own package. It's something that actually we might find a commonality around. Absolutely. Which is, I think very powerful and, and that is transformative. So I'm excited to share more stories Good. in that space on future pod podcasts. So knowing what you've learned and endured regarding hard work and achievement, you've achieved so much in your life and I'm in complete awe as a, as a mother and as I just, I look at you and I think, how did you do it all? A lot of help. Yeah. <laughs> how would you define success now knowing everything that you have well, experienced? I think success for me is doing something that I think is impactful and that I care passionately about. And I'm not um, I'm not at the stage of my life where I'm saying, well, I have to do X by this period of time, and that's going to define success. I say, do I wake up every day, and do I care about what I have to look forward to in the course of that day? And do I think I'm making a difference in the lives of the people who I care about and on the issues that I care about? And so I've, I'm trying at this stage of my life to be quite intentional about how I spend my time. And and committing to write this book was a huge time commitment. I thought, well, okay, if I'm doing that, I'm not doing other things. And so therefore I better do it in a way where I think it's a useful, it's gonna be useful to the people who read it, not just entertaining, but useful. And so that's, that's where I am. To me, success right now is, am I being useful? Fantastic. So that actually leads me to my next question. So as a leader looking to leave a mark on the world, how do you see what you do as impacting or even furthering culture, something we talk mm -hmm. a lot about here at Spotify? What does this look like for you and how do you know when you feel like you've accomplished it? Well, one of the um, one of the one of what I, the areas that I'm focusing on right now that gets right to the heart of culture is um, Michelle Obama and I started an organization called When We All Vote. And we are trying in a nonpartisan way to, with a group of great influencers, to change the culture in our country around voting. You have mandatory voting in Australia. We do. And which I, I get strongly believe. No, <laughs> yes. no, I'm a big believer in, uh, in mandatory voting, and I don't know that I can get that done here. So that won't be my definition of success. But what we can do is to try to have help people appreciate that the basic responsibility of citizenship is, should be to vote. And that our government 
has a great deal of impact on our daily lives. So shouldn't we care who's actually making those decisions that impact us and our families? And so changing that culture is one of the initiatives I have. Um, I also uh, co-chair the United State of Women, which grew out of our White House Council on Women and Girls. I went to that. It was was incredibly amazing. It was great, right? Yes, it was so great. There we are holding up best practices around the country and the world, really, on gender equity and and trying to make... um, tools available to people who want to participate in this worthy good cause of of closing the gender gap and arm them with what they need in order to be most effective. Um, Civic engagement, I'm helping President Obama with his foundation, which is designed to be a platform to teach civic engagement to the next generation. And that will impact culture because what we are worried about is, is that so many people feel helpless. They look around and they're not so happy with the way things are, but they don't know what they can do. And so helping them feel empowered and giving them the tools that they need right in their own community to make a difference in the lives of others, that impacts culture as well. So I have just a range of initiatives that I care about. And so every day I try to do a little bit on each of them. Ending sexual assault is a huge priority, sexual assault, sexual harassment. So I'm supportive of Me Too and Time's Up and an initiative we began in the White House called It's On Us, designed to end sexual assault on college campuses. So I'm keeping pretty busy. You are very busy. So pivoting again just a little bit, uh, the race tax of speaking up about racism and being black, the implicit rules for black people in predominantly white spaces and having to work twice as hard as any other white person to get ahead seem to permeate culture, black culture, as much now as it ever has. For all the women and men of colour listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them? And further to that, for the rest of us, what do you feel we should know and do? Well, look, I think one of the challenges in our country is coming to terms with our history and not letting it define us, but letting it motivate us to do better. And that if we have the attitude that we shouldn't be defined simply by the color of our skin, but what's beneath that, and that we're willing to learn about people who might have different backgrounds, not just in terms of race, gender, religion, um, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, whatever defines us, if we are willing to open up and tell our stories in a way that helps people see the humanity of us, and then suddenly it allows people to move beyond these stereotypes that they may have grown up um, believing in. And so I do believe people can change. I people I believe people can grow. And I think it happens uh, most effectively through being proximate to people and realizing, oh, you're not just an exception. And maybe I don't actually, maybe I made some judgments about you based on who knows what, and they're just not accurate and I can let them go. And in my my parents um, grew up during the Jim Crow era here, my mother in Chicago, my dad in D.C., but they did not shackle me with their reality. They really empowered me to discover my own. And so I think for those of us who are people of color who are still experiencing racism and discrimination, we have to tell our stories and we have to uh, put pressure on people who influence public policy and the laws that are supposed to protect us, to to recognize that without them, without them protecting us, uh, then we will slip backwards. And I'm worried about right that right now. I think there is a toxicity to the discourse and an empowerment of hatred that is not healthy for our society. And 
the only way that changes it is, is if we the people get involved and determine that that's not the culture we want to have here. And, uh, you know, when President Obama was elected, a lot of people thought, my parents thought that was a miracle. They never thought that that could happen in their lifetime. And, but it didn't make us post-racial. In, in a sense, it was a sign of progress. But the work is still ahead. And I think we have to be mindful of that. And we have um, an opportunity to tell those stories. And I saw a study a few years ago while President Obama was still in office that was a concern about race relations in our country. And it grew out of uh, capturing on video some of these young men of color who were being shot and killed by the police. Well, those images are being caught on camera now because we have camera and cell phones. But if you talk to any black family, they will tell you how they have to tell their sons at a very young age how to behave with the police because of a fear of what might happen. Most policemen are law-abiding and they deserve to go home safe as well. But there is tension between communities of color and the police. It doesn't go away by not talking about it. And so what we try to do is not just talk about it, but give local police forces the toolkits that they need to to bridge that gulf and to, and to develop these bonds of trust that are so important for both police and the communities that they serve. I think that should be a role model for everyone else. Absolutely. And as an Australian woman who's fairly new to American culture, specifically black American culture, I took it upon myself to really lean into these topics because I just didn't know. And I was advocating for these communities within Spotify and other companies I've worked for, but I didn't really understand the full history. And it wasn't necessarily understanding the whole history. It was about understanding that no two people's stories are the same right. and the intersectionality really matters. So some of the things that, and I, for our listeners, this may be helpful, is that I started listening to Still Processing, a wonderful podcast, lots of humour, lots of flavour um, that really helped shape my understanding of modern, of the modern black woman and the modern mm -hmm. black man and the modern black LGBTQ person. And that was one way that it really helped me come along on that journey as well amongst a lot of other um, materials that came through allies of mine, uh, one of them, Danielle Lee, who uh, runs our BLK in employee resource group here at Spotify, where I've learned a lot through these allies, which I mm -hmm. think is fantastic. So I urge everyone to find their ally and, and understand the story. And learn and listen. Learn and, and be listen curious. and be curious. That's, my, that's our word. That's what we're using here a lot is, is curiosity, compassion and commitment. So that's our, our three C's here. So just um, on that last note, we recently held our annual inclusion summit, which focused on allyship. I'd love to understand how important allyship has been or has played a part in your life and how you think we can all be better allies to everyone in, that we come into contact with. Well, I think it starts with the fundamental principle that we're all in this together and that we are inextricably linked and that um, we are our brother's keeper, we are our sister's keeper. And it really turns on relationships. I think you're much more likely to advocate for somebody if you care about them. And so figuring out healthy ways to develop relationships with people that are meaningful. The mentors that I've had in my life are people that actually really were rooting for me and, I, and who I opened up and I told my story to and I shared with them. And then they invested in me. And so I think um, we are stronger if we have a strong robust circle of allies in our lives. And for an employer, figuring out ways of fostering those in a way that makes it easier for people to make those bridges, uh, I think would be a worthy objective. This has been Spot On, 
with me, your host, Issa Nodemans, Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Spotify. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next week for more inspirational conversation from leaders across the globe.